Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Have fun with your important conversations and your big issues with your brains and your smart stuff, okay? We got hockey to learn. Dr. Hockey. Welcome to the Dr. Hockey Podcast. I'm Dr. Jay Calvert, and today I am very pleased to be on with, of course, my faithful co-host, Dr. Jason Barkley. How are you, Jason? I'm still faithful, Jay. Oh, thank you. And, and that means a lot to me. But we are totally excited to have Mr. Ron Duguay on the podcast, uh, parachuting in from the East Coast. So he's on uh, the 6 p.m. hour here. We're holding up his chance to get to happy hour. So thank you very much, Ron, for joining us. And uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be with you. This is a first for me, uh, talking hockey with a couple of doctors. <laughs> now, I, I often I'll talk to doctors, but it's, you know, it's about doctor issues. But uh, to have doctors who have the level of excitement that you guys about hockey and, and wanted to chat, and I thought, well, I have to do this because there's much that I've done, but this will be different for me. So, and you guys are based out of California, Beverly Hills, I believe. And, uh, and doc, I believe you spent some time in Manhattan. So I don't know if you're a Ranger fan or you're generally a hockey fan or what, what fan are you with what team? That's what for debate. I'm I'm still tease Jay all the time that he has uh, basically 28 favorite teams in the league. That is Uh, true. (laughs) It all depends where he's gone for vacation or whatever, but Jay, you explain that. Well, I, I grew up a Ranger fan, Ron, and in fact, uh, you know, I, I always uh, remember as a, uh, I think I was probably about 10 years old going to the Livingston Mall in New Jersey to get an autograph from Mr. Ron Duguay himself, but I wow. couldn't even come close to getting the autograph because there was a line of over 2,500 young girls who wanted to see you know, i was i was there because i was a hockey fan but these girls were just very interested in your good looks and your flow because you had the best hair going in in the nhl i think anybody's ever seen well you know when i look back at those days and a part of me when i look back to think how special that was for me to have the young ladies appreciate me <laughs> and the young men appreciate me appreciate me as much as they did you you just kind of take it for granted and when I look back I'm like my goodness it I really had it going there for a while <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was it was part uh, my style on the ice because I was very recognizable uh, and that's when when I when I talk to players now I, I tell them listen when if you're going to step on the ice don't be regular be noticeable. Do something. You can find a way to do something, whatever way it is within you. Be noticeable. Don't just blend in. And so I know I didn't just blend in on the ice and because I, I have such a passion for the game. And can you imagine wearing a Ranger jersey, playing at Madison Square Garden? If that doesn't get the juices going and if that doesn't have you going 100 miles an hour, when you have the power, when you have the power to have someone jump out of their seats when you have the power to have fans leave the building and say, what about that number 10? What about that Duguay? When you have that power, once you realize that and you don't utilize that during this window of your life, then you're missing it. And, and I think that is probably the best speech a coach can give his players as he's reminding them every time they step on the ice out of that dressing room, there's 20,000 people waiting for you out there. What are you going to do tonight? What is it that you're going to do, right? 
And um, and so, anyways, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just I was just saying that I was a huge fan of yours. Oh, okay, yes, up. yeah, yeah. So, and and I grew up a Ranger fan. Uh, but you know, the thing that, uh, was, was really amazing is that, yeah, you know, you definitely had the style points and you had all the, you know, you had all the, all that good stuff going on for you from a, uh, public relations standpoint, but you were a killer player. You scored a lot of goals and people like that. And, and you were really, uh, you know, just, a. I, I'm, I'm sure that your teammates all look back and say, you know, it was great playing with that guy, you know, the, the way that the Rangers were at that time, because I think you came into the league in, in uh, the late seventies, obviously that's when I, when I remember you being around, you know, New Jersey, New York, and just people were nuts about the Rangers and they were nuts about you as a, as a part of the team, but it was so exciting and, and fun. And just, as you said, the garden is insane. It's so fun to go to games there. It's a blast. Yeah. Well, it, 77 was my first year drafted first round. So expectations are high. You bet. And, and, and you know that. You get that. And for players who get drafted in the first round, especially back in 1977, you were part of 500 players uh, playing at the highest level of amateur hockey, which is much different now. And so uh, you know going into it, oh, there's a, there's, there's a uh, pretty good chance if you're a first rounder, you're going to make the team and you're going in there and you got some special skills. So I went into training camp. I'll never forget this. Even though I was skating alongside – Phil Esposito, Kenny Hodge. There was, uh, I mean, uh, the uh, I had Gressner, Maloney's. I mean, we had a really good team. But I felt like I felt very comfortable knowing that if I uh, compete the way I would normally compete with my size and strength, that there was no doubt I was going to make the team. And so, uh, and of course, back then, players in the NHL at the time didn't train as hard in the offseason. So you can have an advantage in the training camp first month or so, because a lot of them, I got to tell you, a few of the guys hadn't skated yet. No, wow. not even open up their bag. Like Steve Vickers was a part of that team. Kenny Hart, Phyllis was, you know, these guys, the trainer would, came by and he says, here's your bag from last season. And so they would step on the ice and they're on cruise control. Meanwhile, I was going hundred miles an hour. So my point was I was prepared to make the team. And, uh, and when, I stepped on the ice after three weeks of training camp at Madison Square Garden. Well, I just took it to another level. Just that uh, interaction with the fans and the feeling, because I played in front of, you know, maybe 3,000 people, 5,000 people, junior hockey, and all of a sudden there's 19, 20,000. And then the first time you step on the ice and you hit someone, you do something special, you hear that roar. I'm like, wow, I'm going to like this. So either, uh, either you're going to be intimidated by the, the city uh, and the fans, or you're going to embrace it. I embraced it, and it brought the best out of me. And to this day, it's what I miss. It's, 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 and the other thing is, I understood that playing hockey is a sport. You're playing hockey. But it's also, it's a form of entertainment. So how do you do both? How do you step on the ice, play the game, be successful, and be entertaining? So there's two sides to it. And, and that's the other thing. A lot of guys don't get that. They really don't. They don't understand that. They don't get that, that they're actually entertaining those fans. And so don't be regular. And uh, and so for me to have a good start also in training, it was going to be important. So uh, because it, if you're off to a sluggish start, the coach may say, well, you know what, let's just put them on the third line, fourth line. But if you come out of the gate flying, working hard, all of a sudden you're top two lines. So for me, I started scoring right away. 
I got the confidence. I'm on the power play. I got uh, Freddie Shiro ends up being my coach in my second year. And Freddie loved my style. He's double shifting me. So I, I worked for the opportunity, worked hard. I got the opportunity. I benefited from it. So, uh, and after being in New York a couple of years, I couldn't have been happier, right? Going to work. I'm sure you guys go to work and you're happy. Going to work and being happy that makes a big difference. And so I was happy. I was having a whole lot of fun in New York and uh, on and off the ice. I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I was being recognized. And so, but it all came from is putting in the work and then you get recognized. Hey, Ron, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Now, by the way, I'm a Red Wings fan. You can see my old uh, English D here for the, uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. I want to hear about your time in Detroit because I remember that very well. Um, but you were drafted a year before the NHL draft, there was a WHA draft. You were drafted by the Winnipeg Jets third overall. What was it as an 18, 19 year old kid at that time that made you say, I either want to hold out or this isn't right for me or taking your chances in the NHL draft? What was it that your thought process was at the time? Well, I was actually drafted as a 19 year old by Winnipeg. It was the same year as getting drafted in the NHL by the New York Rangers. And, um, Here's what's funny. People ask me, what was the draft like back then? And I told them, I said, essentially nothing. You know, today they make a big deal out of it. Right. It's it's a uh, they find a location, fill the arena. Everyone shows up, your family and friends and blah, blah, blah. And it's all this anticipation. Back then it was a phone call on a hard line. Right. <laughs> and 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 the other thing back then, the agents didn't tell you a whole lot. It was like the agent was in control of your destination. Mm. It wasn't like the agent would call and say, okay, Ron, what are your thoughts? Here's what I'm thinking. We got different calls. We got different interests. What would you like, Ron? No. This was, I'll never forget this, Saturday morning, Friday night. Um, I remember going out, had a, you know, had a blast, get up the next morning. Now 20, so I, drinking age was 16. So I, wake, I, I can remember waking up on this Saturday morning. My mother knocks on my door and says, uh, uh, Bill, uh, Mr. Bill Waters is on the phone, which is representing Al Eagles. He's on the phone. I'm like, why, is he, why does he want to talk to me now? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, the draft today. That's how unaware we were back then. It was, it was like, yeah, whatever, right? He calls and he says, hey, Ron, good news. Uh, you've been drafted both by Winnipeg and you've been back drafted by the Rangers. And, uh, and so I've already, I've already negotiated your contract. This is what you're making. And um, congratulations. That was it. It was a 10 minute conversation. Hang up the phone. I go upstairs, tell my parents, Oh, by the way, I got drafted by the Rangers. This is what I'm making. And that's it. Went back to bed. That was it. There was, there was no, Hey, Ron, you think you want to go to Winnipeg? Let's talk about that. You you really want to go to the Rangers? Let's talk about that. This is what uh, Winnipeg is all nothing. I mean nothing. It was set like these the like Bill Al Eagleson and the owners. They were one. Yeah. And so you know back to you. Did, I was like I was happy just to get. And the other thing is I don't remember thinking that uh, oh. I need to get drafted by the Leafs or Montreal or Canadian city. I don't even remember knowing a whole lot about, I couldn't have given you two names that played for the Rangers. And so <laughs> uh, it, it is so different nowadays. It was oh, yeah. so different. And I mean, I knew I was going to go in the first round. I didn't know which team, 
and my my agent never even told me anything. So he said, "You may go first overall or whatever." So wow. Anyways, that's a whole different animal than today. I mean, uh, completely different. And, you, and the players, the players are in full control. I mean, they're in full control, telling their agent exactly where they want to go, where they would like to go what they would prefer or not prefer. Now it's like back then, Eagleson, my goodness, they, they controlled everything. Well, then you got to, you got to play on the team Canada back in 81. What was that like playing with some of that talent that uh, was, was on, t- on the Canada's team? Well, I think uh, the late great uh, Billy, uh, uh, oh my God, what's his last name that managed uh, the Islanders, uh, Bill Torrey. Mm-hmm. Bill Torrey was managing the Islanders and we had just come off, the season before a tough series against the Island. I played really well. And so Tori was part of management. He said, you know what? Cause you can't have all the same type of players on the team. They said, we're going to need some checkers on this team. And uh, the way Duguay plays, I think we're going to like him because they started to think and they started to imagine me, Bob Gainey. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and possibly Butch Goring from the Islanders. And sure enough, that's what it ended up. I went to training camp and I got all these Hall of Famers on this team. And I prepared as I always did. You know, I know my legs are my strength, my speed, my strength, and my desire. So I went to camp 100 miles an hour. Scotty Bowman loved my style because I did play well against Montreal. And sure enough, they, they formed this check-in line, which was me, Bob Gainey, and Butch Goring. And we, uh, we checked all the top lines um, and we won. I think we won just about every game until the last game. Guess what Scotty Bowman does in the last game? He decides to take us off. We're playing against the Russians. He takes us off to our checking assignment, which was the top Russian line. And he says, we're going to go toe to toe with their best line. So he had Trottier's line, uh, Clark Gillies and, was it Bossy? I can't remember. I don't know if Bossy was playing with Gretzky. But he, he, they went toe-to-toe. Well, sure enough, that top line scored three goals against the Trottier line. Oh. And, uh, and so, you know, Butch and I, Butch Gore and I, to this day, we talk about that. Says Scotty, we love Scotty, but he messed up. He messed up. <laughs> he should have he kept us um, against their top line. Anyways, so that's my memory of uh, playing there. Probably my biggest achievement is making that team. When you look at the guys who are on that team, then probably my biggest achievement. And I did it. The other thing is I did it, I think, when I was 23. So that set me up for the next few years to build some confidence. So then I go to training camp. Now I go to Rangers, right? They had just fired their coach and they hired Herb Brooks. Right. Wow. So now I show up to training camp, which training camp was half over, and and I meet Herb, and I'm in great shape. And uh, Herb kind of knew of my style. And right away, he gave me a good centerman, gave me Mark Pavlich. And right out of the gate, I started scoring. I got 40 goals that year. And a lot of it had to do with just having confidence in yourself. So, wow. 40 yeah. goals. That's a, you know, Dan and I were talking about this. You know, we, we, we always talk about, you know, oh, someone's had an off year or they only scored 20 goals. 20 goals is a solid season for – for a very a vast number of forwards, depending on who they're playing with, but 40 goals. I mean, that's just, that's insane. Yeah. Yes. And it, and it, and it's, it takes for a, uh, for me as a winger, it takes for a good centerman. It takes for yeah. a good winger and it takes having a quality ice time, which for me, power play penalty kill 
And back then we weren't going, we weren't really playing four lines much. We were still kind of playing three lines. So he had a lot of ice time. And the key for me was scoring early, early in the season. And so I started scoring and I was in great shape. And the other thing is the style of game we're playing. With Herb, it was, we weren't stationary. We weren't going uh, north and south. We're in constant movement, which was great for me. I can keep my speed up. And little Pavlich would just always find me. And so he allowed me to, the game opened up more, which is more suited to my style. And so between Herb Brooks, good centerman, um, you know, all those things just, just kind of lined up. Yeah, Herb Brooks was, uh, he was quite the coach at that time, for sure. That was, uh, I mean, that was his moment, right? That was his whole time. It was, uh, you know, between the miracle and ice and what was going on, it was just a huge time to be playing with those people. Yeah, well, Herb was a great, um, um, he was well-prepared. So you liked him because he was well-prepared. Mild-mannered guy. Um, I had a lot of confidence in him. It's just that he started, because he came from college hockey and he had a certain authority over college players, he shows up to New York and he's got me, right? (laughs) And he's like... I'm sure he's thinking he must go home to his wife. He's like, what am I going to do with this guy? This guy is the ultimate. He says, I pick up the newspaper. I'm reading about him in Studio 54. He's partying. I can tell when he comes to practice, comes to practice. Sometimes he's a mess. He looks tired, <laughs> but he gets it done on the ice. So I think he, he felt like he didn't have full uh, control over me. And that kind of bothered him in the first year he kind of let it pass because he, what, what are you going to say? I'm scoring. Right. And the right. second season, the second season, I showed up in training camp and I was a little bit off. I partied hard that summer and I show up to training camp. He could tell I was out of shape right out of the gate. He got on my case. Next thing you know, most of that year I was on the third line mm. and he, he sort of, uh, he, I think he found a way to be able to, um, uh, to uh, reduce my ice time, reduce my playing, and my production was less. And sure enough, at the end of that season, he got the green light to trade me. Mm. It's not that we disliked each other. It's just that he didn't like my stock. And that's where I, I, that's where I feel like his inexperience in handling men hurt him. And uh, because – he could have just, we could have had some man-to-man talks, bring me in this room, say, hey, Ron, listen, you know, let's have some balance here. Let's talk about this. Let's talk. Never really had a conversation other than one time he brought me in and he, he opens up the New York Post, which I work for now. And <laughs> he worked, he opens it up on page six where that's where all the gossip is. And, and he, he's pointing, look at Ron, there's another article with you tonight, um, today. You're, you know, apparently you're hanging out with Farrah Fawcett. And um, I, I need you out of page six and more on the sports page, okay? This is what I need out of you. And that's, uh, that's about as much as he would say to me. Right. Other than just like a, a father and son or just wanting to help me because he saw what I did. I never had that conversation with him. That's where I think he felt because I wasn't a difficult guy to be around. So I think that's where Herbie f- uh, fell short, you know, is knowing how to speak to players. I actually knew Farah. It's a shame – I didn't have a chance to ask her about that uh, before she passed away. Unfortunately, I, I went to her funeral as well. So, uh, but had I known you were, you knew her, I would have loved to have asked her questions. <laughs> well, you could, you wouldn't have been able to ask her that around Ryan 
Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. I, uh, I met them both. I met them both one night at an event and uh, fair and I, um, well, she had heard or read about me because I was on the cover of interview magazine, Andy Warhol's magazine, put me on a cover and that's where things opened up for me. And, uh, and I think she, she was interested in meeting me and here I am at an event. And, uh, so we are starting talking, we're talking and looking at each other. Like we're liking on each other. Meanwhile, Ryan's <laughs> over there. <laughs> And um, uh, so anyways, I think she had said to me, you, you, I think she was doing a Broadway play, Manhattan. Yep. Said, uh, you know, if you have, a, you have an opportunity, come and watch. Come and see the play. And I waited a couple of weeks. I waited for Ryan to leave town. <laughs> <laughs> All part of the strategy. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so I, end up, I, uh, I end up going and I brought a teammate of mine. I think it was Eddie Meal. I said, Eddie, Eddie was my wingman back then. I don't remember. Well, Detroit Red Wings, right? Eddie Meal yep. <laughs> and uh, goaltender. So I said, Eddie, you're coming with me. And uh, I, I'm going to need you to be there uh, for a while until we see how things go. We watch the play. We go back in the green room. I, back then, you could just knock on the door. Knock on the door. And she goes, oh, hi, Ron. <laughs> And uh, and that's when I turned to Eddie. I said, Eddie, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I got it. And, I got it from uh, here. Yeah, I got it from here. So then after that, she, uh, you know, we, uh, the next day, hey, you want to go for drinks? And one thing led to another. And we got to know each other a little bit. Shh, on, don't let Ryan. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> well, no. God, sorry, you won't listen to this podcast. <laughs> but no. Well, that, that, uh, you know, cause then you went off to the Red Wings, which of course, you know, you have to understand that Jason Berkeley is not a Red Wings fan. He feels he's part of the team and part of their destiny to win the cup. So he was like, <laughs> this guy played on the line with Iserman. Like you don't understand Jay. We have to talk to Ron Duguay. I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure yeah. he'll have something to say about working with Stevie. Y. Before yeah. We get, well, that was your question round though. A quick question. When you came to Detroit, though, they gave you number 10, which was Al Del Vecchio's number, which is now retired. How, how was it? I think you might have been one of the last guys. I think it was you and maybe Jimmy Carson, one of the last couple of guys to wear number 10 before it was retired. What was it like when you got there and, and were, the, were the guys welcoming and everything else? How was it when you changed teams like that? Well, if you can manage on getting traded from the New York Rangers, I'm going to Detroit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a, a bottom, bottom team. In the On the league. way up, not, though. On the way up. Well, <laughs> not before I got there. It was not on the way up before I got there. The idea was they were going to make some changes. They're going to have a first-round pick. And I, I don't know if they had drafted Stevie yet, they or they did draft Stevie, yeah. and then they traded for me. So I'm assuming they were looking for a winger to play with them. And what they had, they didn't think it was enough. And then, of course, the Rangers are shopping me around. And uh, <clears throat> and so Jimmy Devalando, of course, thought that, uh, you know, I would be a good fit. So, but I, leaving New York, uh, I, it was mixed feelings. Uh, I felt like I wasn't feeling, at, towards the end, I was feeling sluggish, tired in my last year, besides not playing, not really happy. And a lot of it had to do with my lifestyle. So, um I think that um, there comes a point where, and I, I'm 26, comes a point where you have to make a decision. Do I keep doing what I'm doing, playing and partying, or do I now, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in my prime. 
do I need to be focused on being a player? Because at the end of the day, I got to be a player. It's still a job. I'm getting paid according to how I play. So when I went to Detroit, I, I, I had made a commitment that summer that I was going to get in great shape, um, reboot myself. And so I went there in the right frame of mind. And so I had a good talk with, at the time, uh, coach was Nick Polano. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they sort of, they build it up. Hey, listen, we got this kid, Stevie Eiserman. We got this guy, John Ogronick. Mm-hmm. And we believe that uh, you guys, the three of you, regardless of everything else, you guys can be one of the top lines in the NHL. And so because I showed up in the right frame of mind, I knew I was going to get a lot of ice time. And, I, and the other thing is I had met a woman that I felt like I wanted to settle down with. This is after Farah, just before Farah. And, um, and so things were lining up. Okay, it's time to settle down. So I met this woman. I asked her to move in with me. You're going to need me, need to keep me grounded. And um, sure enough, that's what happened. I, I, um, I got to play with Stevie, great shape, started scoring early. And I had two and a half really good years there until, you know, they make coaching changes and that can mess things up and we can get into that or not. But overall, I like playing in Detroit because it's a hockey town, hockey city. It's all about hockey. There was no distractions in Detroit, you know. And in fact, I think I, I even quit drinking. I didn't even, I hardly drank. And so I made a commitment to then I end up marrying a woman, to my wife, to hockey. And it's some of my most productive hockey um, having played. So I enjoyed my time there. The, the fans, um, enjoyed me. I had, uh, I would get good feedback from how I played. And so, uh, wearing number 10, um, was made me more comfortable because I was accustomed to wearing 10. Cause I wore that. And, uh, and number 10, the idea behind number 10, just so you know, I was a big Leafs fan. And while everyone else growing up in Sudbury, Ontario, everyone else was a big Montreal fan. To me, that was too easy. They were winning all the time. And so I was a big Leaf fan. And George Armstrong was wore number 10. He was a captain. That's so right. that's where that's where I thought, not that I wanted to be George Armstrong. I just loved the look of number 10. And when I had an opportunity to, to wear that as a junior in Sudbury, I wore number 10. And for most of my career, I had number 10. But uh, playing with Stevie Eisenman, I mean, the kid was good right out of the gate. The only thing that with Stevie – uh, early on, um, because I'm flying off the ice, I'm still playing Herb Brooks style. Sometimes he'd hold on to the puck a little too long. I'd have to stop at the blue line, wait for him, but he still had the puck, and uh, he'd, he'd still kind of find me. So it took Stevie a while to dish the puck a little bit earlier and get adjusted to the quicker play, but he's got he had good hands, and uh, um, and so that, that team was kind of fun because we, we started making some changes. They brought in Brad Park. Even Daryl Sittler was there. And so we had some real characters. And then, well, that's then, then they bring in my second year, then they bring in Bobby Prober, Joey Kosher, Valerie uh, <laughs> Melrose on a Teddy No. And now we, now, now we got, I have on a, on one of the top lines in the NHL, very protected, <laughs> very <Yes>. protected. <laughs> and those guys, those guys provided so much entertainment to sit back and watch Proby and kosher. Oh my God, it was freaking hysterical. <laughs> and so it, it was, it was a fun team. And we were, I we made the playoffs that first year after not making the playoffs, I think for about 13 years, something wow. crazy. And Brad Park was on that team also. So uh, we had some, some real uh, interesting guys. I enjoyed my time there. 
and I scored. I probably averaged a point a game playing with Detroit. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I think you, when you had like 38 goals. I Listen, I remember the, I remember the whole <laughs> madness, hysteria with you coming to Detroit. It was a whole thing. Everybody was so excited. We got this guy from the Rangers, and everyone, your reputation preceded you. And that was really when I was coming into my own as far as really starting to, to, to love hockey because the wings were getting better. I mean, growing up before that, you know, my dad would take me, my uncle would take me to games at the old Olympia where there were more fights in the, in the stands, uh, you know, than in the, on the ice. And they're giving, you know, it was a whole disaster. Although I love going to the games there, then the Joe opens and then everything starts happening. They draft Stevie, you're coming to town. I mean, it was a whole like step of things that kind of kept happening that really just, in, infused the city back with his love for hockey. And then I was really and, 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 and we got to make a mention of uh, Mr. Illich. Yes. I mean, Mr. Illich came in there and he was willing to spend money and do That's the right. things you needed to do to have a winning organization. So you got to give a lot of credit to, to Mike Illich. Oh, of course. And, and, and that was yeah. one of the things also, I was really bummed when they traded you to Pittsburgh at that point, I, I, I just even I couldn't process at the time, and I still yeah. don't know why. It was goofy. It was it was just another stupid. I think it was uh, Jimmy Devalana was still the manager. He was still the manager, and uh, I'm in my third season. Point a game. Yeah, and they, you know, Pittsburgh is looking for a guy to play with Mario Lemieux. And I don't know if I was being shopped around. We had we had struggled going into towards the end of the year. They hired, uh, hired uh, Harry Neal as a coach. Yep. I mean, Harry's the nicest guy, but probably the worst coach I've ever had. He was wow. god awful, and uh, so things started to unveil. Uh, and I think you know what he decided he wanted to do. He broke up our line. He says, I need balance. So he broke up our line. Things aren't going good. Oh. And and they started picking away at certain players. And uh, I was one of them. I'm like, you know, sometimes you wonder, back then, salaries. I had a big salary. I was one of the top 10 guys in the NHL because I was a – my contract was bonus paced. So whenever bonus I would make, it would add on to the following year. And so I was up to 450000 which was a lot back then. Sure. And so you wonder sometimes, oh, you know, are we really getting our value out of him? And, you know, you don't know, but uh, uh, they did not need to trade me <laughs> at all. Yeah, I was. But wrong. they did. I mean, I was sh- I was shocked. I know things were going right. And uh, but they did not need to trade me. They did. And uh, I don't know if it was because I think they traded me for uh, uh, who was it? One of their Pittsburgh, who was a decent player, Doug Shedden. Doug Shedden. And he was yeah. a decent player. He, I think probably younger than me, probably making le- half the money I was making. For sure. And they probably thought, oh, this is a good trade moving forward, right? So, um, anyways, I, I should have played there another three or four or five years. They could have kept, they could have kept Stevie and Johnny and I together. And uh, but for a manager not to be able to identify what the problem was, and the problem was they broke up the line. We were yeah. one of the top lines in the NHL for two years. Harry Neal comes in, the genius that he is, says we need to break this up. Too much on one line. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, I, I was shocked, and and that's that was the downhill to me after that. That's where I I started to 
you know, it, that hurt that one, that one hurt. And uh, so anyways. Yeah. I remember the Detroit fans are really upset about that whole situation. And, you know, again, you don't, you don't know what some of these trades, what goes on in the minds of you said, the GM and the coach and owner, who knows what, you know, what happens at that point. But, um, but then after that, you go back to New York and then yeah. Jay, you know, what, what was like the return like as a fan, Jay? Uh, when- <laughs> it was a big deal. I remember. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's that that's everybody, uh, you know, in New York sees uh, Ron Duguay as a Ranger. The fact that he made some rounds to the NHL is uh, sort of irrelevant. I think the Rangers have always claimed you as a player. Would you agree with that, uh, Ron? Yes. Yeah. Um, something happened, though, in New York that uh, I regret to this day. Uh, at one point... I was in the middle of a uh, contract dispute with management. And uh, <clears throat> and I think that I, I thought I had the power of the fans behind me. And I, and I, I was asked about the contract with, um, I, it might have been Larry Brooks, who I work with now. They asked me about the contract, my thoughts on it. And thinking I had all this power, I said, well, if I don't get what I want, I'll, I may leave. And I, and I said it in a way where I thought I was going to have some power behind it. <laughs> no. What happened is I end up stepping on the ice. Now the fans are, are, are thinking I'm rejecting them. So I started wow. hearing I started hearing some boos. Boo. Oh. Ron Duguay and this and that. And so that kind of uh, – that's one of the things I regret most. And so when I went back the second time, it was mixed. The feelings were mixed, and um, and so it wasn't like the first time. Plus, I didn't get to wear number ten. I got to wear number forty-four. I didn't feel like I was myself. I had lost some confidence. I wasn't playing on the top two lines, and that's what happens. I'm telling you, confidence is such a big deal. You lose a little bit, and then you're not playing with the right guys. Then you're pressing and you're pressing. Next thing you know, ten games go by and you got one assist. Yeah. And uh, next, you're not as relaxed. You're, you're holding a stick too tight. And just one thing leads to another. Unless you have a coach says, you know what, Ron, just stay calm, relax. We're going to give you some good players. Just go and have fun. Go play hard. But unless a coach always thinks, oh, you need to work harder. You always just need to work harder. Or they, they, they make it feel like, okay, you prove yourself on a third line, we'll bring you up, right? So it's a different – that's why if you don't have the right coach at the right time to be able to help you as you're struggling, some players don't come out of it. They do not come out of it. Yeah, we've definitely so. seen that. You know, you see players that are that go on a tear and then something happens and they just – they can't, can't bring it back, you know. And I can, I can name 10 players in the NHL right now that are in that kind of a rut that you, you see them, you just go, what happened? You know, where are they? And they are – they're gripping the yep. stick too tight. They're not, they're not seeing the – they're not seeing the game for what they used to see it as and how to, how to score and how to get in position. And it's, it, it, it clearly is a, a big mental part of, I mean, there's so yeah. much with playing the NHL. I mean, it, like you said, it's, it is entertainment. It's you're getting paid big money for it. The, the fans expect huge things out of you. you. They expect you to deliver every single time you get on the ice. And that, that isn't reality. It, it is a game and it, and it has its ups downs and the, the, the players are human. They have, emotional issues and things that are going on for them that can totally interfere with their ability to perform at that level. Yeah. And, and there's the other thing is there's so much pressure on the coaches nowadays that they, every game 
they look at every game now. It's a game that it's either helps them get in the playoffs or not. When you're under that kind of pressure, like before, it would be like it would be uh, November and ah, uh, you know, come January, we'll you know we'll work things out. <laughs> but nowadays, because of um, uh, with all the you you get a point with a with a tie, it's hard if you're down six points or eight points. It's hard to make up those six to eight points. And so for every game, coaches get it now where they think we got to, every game's a game to win. So if a player's struggling a little bit, they don't have patience with thinking, okay, we'll, we'll just keep them there for a while and see what happens. No, they're, they're going with the best players, the top six guys, whoever's going, they're going. And then coaches nowadays overcoach. What I mean by overcoaching, they always feel like if the game is a little bit off, instead of just talking to the players, encouraging the players, no, they got to be behind the bench. I have to do something. I got to make line changes. I got to change this. I got to change that. That, to me, is overcoaching. If you've had a line that's been going well and they happen to be struggling a little bit, to me, is just have a conversation with them. Just talk to them. Just talk to them. Encourage them, right? Instead of feeling like, okay, let's move you. I'm going to bring someone else. It messes with the players. It's totally. to me. It's and and the worst, the worst at it. And I saw him coach in New York, and I like him as a coach. John Tortorella was the worst. It was always like because they get interviewed after every game, right? It's all about what he did, what I did, what I had to do, <laughs> right? I had to do this right. and I had to do that. Versus a lot of coaches just let the players play. You're there to talk to them. You know, you have a feel for your players. And uh, unless you really know you got a player that's hurting, struggling, and you to talk to him, say, hey, I'm not feeling right. He says, okay. But if you have a couple of lines that normally are going, and if they're a little bit off, just go give them a pat in the back. Instead of feeling like you got to break it up, you know? Yeah. So I, I see coaches, it, it's too, it, they get to overcoach. And um, it, it hockey is just it's just not like that. Well, I or see that. Uh, not just the overcoaching, but sometimes you see them actually benching players for games <laughs> and periods. And I mean, that's yeah. like even I think you talk about confidence. I think to be to be benched or not even given any ice time after something happens or they make a bad bad pass or whatever else, which recently I think happened was with Lining uh, uh, with with Tortorella. You know, benched him for the rest of the game, and it was a whole thing. I guess some kind of words were exchanged, but that's got to mess with somebody, even somebody with that kind of caliber level of play. I, I can't imagine yep. that guy, it's got to be constructive. So to me, yeah, to me, there's, there's a better way. Cause I've coached, I coached four years. There's a better way. You just go talk to your players. Now, if you're still getting the same result from the player yeah, and uh, he's just not getting it, then, then, okay. But if, if a player's off here and there, the thing to do is just go talk to him to say, Hey, what's up? What's going on? How do you feeling? Is there something wrong? Cause you seem to be a little off. And if he says, listen, I'm a little tired tonight, coach. I say, okay, well, I'm not going to change a thing. I just want you to make your shift a little bit shorter. Just go hard, get off the ice, and let's just continue to manage this. I believe in you. I like you. That's the way you keep talking to your players. Unless you do have a problem with the player, then, you know, you make that decision. But it, it's, it's just too much. It's just too much over coaching. Yeah, well, you see that with, like, uh, a lot of the, the coaches, like uh, Brindamore and um... – I think of uh, like Mike Sullivan. These guys really back off the players and let them play. 
And Brenda Moore. That, and I think those guys really, because of their style of coaching, they get a lot out of their, out of their players, yes. Where, you know, even like, a like, um, Bob, like Bob Bugner's, you know, his, his coaching style seems a little bit more, uh, interventional. And I think he, his teams have a harder time because of that. I mean, I mean, maybe that's to, to speak to your point of, you know, letting the players do their thing and not, not jumping into every single micromanagement of, of their game. Yeah. It, it, it's a game of bounces, good bounces, bad bounces. You're, you're under pressure. And um, if a player keeps making the same mistake, then you have to address it. But things happen out there and, and there's good luck. There's bad luck. As long as you know the player and his intention and his heart and you care about him and you know that he cares, you got to have a little compassion because who feels worse than that guy who's made a mistake, comes to the bench, there's, there's nothing – you don't have to say anything. The guy already feels bad already, right? Oh, yeah. You just come and say, hey, just forget about it. Let's just move on, right? That's the type of coach that you want, you know, unless the guy keeps making the same mistake. But, you know, that's a different thing. But, um, yeah, Brenda Moore, I love his coaching. I love his teaching. He allows his players to have fun. I mean, you remember a couple of years ago where they were doing that goofy stuff and, you know, and the, and the I don't know if it's the warm up or if before the game or something. It was kind of goofy, but, and I thought, oh my God. But when you think about it, he was just letting them have fun, totally. right? They were like, they were like being, everyone poked fun at him, right? But he was just, when you see the results and the guys just feeling like they can be themselves. They don't have they don't feel like they got eyes on their back every time they're on the ice and every time they touch the puck. That's the worst thing. When you feel like your coach is, is watching every single, is dissecting every single thing you're doing, that's how you start playing. Yeah. You start playing that way. You start overthinking everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's that's playing, that's that's the worst type of coach. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in New York, because New York, you want to talk about the Rangers, struggling right now. Yeah, And Coach Quinn, I've liked Coach Quinn. He's been a good coach, good teacher, young players. But all of a sudden, he's going through a tough time right now. Things are just not going well. And I'm seeing a guy that's he, – he looks like he's a little too uptight. And I'm starting to see it in some of the players. And, um, and that's – it's a learning curve for him because he's a college guy. And uh, so I think we're kind of seeing that with him where sometimes you got to just um, – got to have fun. You know, yeah. and not micromanage everything. These guys, they got these coaches, assistants. All they do is look at video, 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 analytics, 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 right? And um, who was it uh, that said that? Oh, um, Gerard in uh, Vegas. Gerard Gallant. Yeah. Jerry Gallant, friend of mine. Yep. And they asked him about analytics. He goes, well, I, you know, I don't pay attention to that stuff. Why? Because <laughs> he can watch the game. He can watch the game. He can see the game. He knows his players. I know, I don't need to know if a guy hit the if he missed the net three times or I see it. And uh, and he got criticized for that. He really did. And you wonder why did why did they let him go? Because he yeah. was too old school. He was too old school. Love Jerry. Why do you think they went to the finals in his first year? That's right. With a new team, likable guy. Yeah. They were playing for the coach. Why he's not – why they, no one's hired him, I don't get it. Why? I think, eh, he's I an old-school guy. He's not an X and O guy. He's, you know. I think he'll be back at the coaching the wings next year is my guess. But that's – yeah. any hope in the world, that's what I – we're all hoping the same thing. All of us yeah, so, yeah, as you know, I play with Jerry. Yeah. 
and it's right. And I've got to know him. He, he's, he's a really good guy, but he's a, he's a simple guy. Simple. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't overreact. He sees the game as a non-complicated game. And he knows players. He knows how to use players. He knows how to talk to players. He knows how to put players together. He knows how to run the bench. And he's got a feel for the game. But he's but he sees it more simple-like versus you got these coaches and writing and writing and analytics and look at the uh, your pad and all oh, the play. That's not Jerry. Yeah. He can see the game. He, he You know, some of that is good. You can go look at it later. But he's not an analytic guy. Well, Ron, what are, what are you up to these days? If you're, uh, you know, I know you're you're working. Sometimes we see you on uh, NHL Network. What what is your what is your main main gig right now? Well, my yeah, right now. When you say right now, everything's been shut down. You know, most of my stuff was in New York. Yeah. Uh, um. So I I've done I been doing a lot of work for the New York Ranger organization. I host a lot of their parties. That was kind of a side thing that I was doing. I did television for MSG for 12 years. Yep. And, uh, and then they let me go. Uh, they wanted to make some changes. And I spent two years in the schools in the Bronx mentoring kids. Wow. This opportunity came up about, yeah, this opportunity came up, say, Ron, how, how would you feel? We want to create a program that we want to just talk to kids. We, we need a couple of celebrities to come in and just talk to them. Um, you know, just about life. And so I ended up doing that for two years. And, wow. and I started doing it just before they let me go from television. So it was an easy transition from one thing to the other. So it kept me in New York. While I'm in New York, I'm still doing all my events. And so I did that for two years and then COVID started. Um, and so that shut that down. But just before that, the New York Post came to me, said, Ron, would you be available to do our New York Post hockey podcast? Hmm. I'm like, yeah, right up my alley. So I end up starting it a month before COVID, maybe two. And I, we have uh, at New York Post office, Fox and New York Post is Manhattan. Um, we had a little studio there. So we started. It was great. My first guest, Mike Keenan, was awesome. Wow. Mike's a good friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys want, if you ever want to, if you ever want to talk to Mike, Mike, Mike's a great guy. He'll talk to you. Love it. Um, so anyways, um, so I started doing that. And then the thing about podcasts, we can do it out of the house. That's right. And so while my lockdown, the other thing I was doing, I was several events. I still play tour. I was going across Canada doing many events, probably playing 50 games a year. And so I'm based out of Florida, but every week, at least every single week I was gone probably three days a week doing something. So I was traveling all the time. I did that for 15 years, like travel a lot. I would even go to Russia and play some games. And, um, and then everything got shut down. So, um, so since the lockdown, just before the lockdown, I was um, doing my show, what's called Up in the Blue Seats, Madison Square Garden Blue Seats, New York Post. And I do it with Larry Brooks, which is awesome. And because uh, I've known Larry for over 40 years. So because um, most of the time I do what I'm doing now, I'll answer questions. But to host it, it was something different. And I've always liked being able to uh, have the opportunity to ask the questions because <clears throat> I'm always curious about a lot of things. Like, you know, we can keep talking. I can ask you a bunch of questions about a lot of stuff. Sure. Right. Um, of but we're not going to do that because it's about me right now. <laughs> you bet. Uh, and so. 
so I get to host it. So I get to have like last year I had like over 50 guests wow. and all types That's of guests. Ton. And yeah. Yeah. So that was last season and then short season. And now we started the, uh, we just started the year. And so I get to have a guest. I got to chat with Larry. We do a nice 45 minute show. And the other thing that uh, I've been doing, I represent this product just before COVID. I had this guy come to me, he says, Ron, I have a product that I think everyone's going to need during COVID. I said, what's that? Well, it's a hand hand sanitizer moisturizer. Everyone's going to be using sanitizer, but they're going to dry their hands up. But we've added moisturizer. I said, what do you want me to do? You don't have to do anything. I says, I "I like who you are. You're going to be on on the advisory board because we like what you represent. So it's called H21. It's a product H21 and uh, it is doing very well. And so I'm on the advisory board. I don't do a whole lot and uh, which is nice. I can just be at home. And the other thing is there's this company called Grape Stars. Grape Stars is a company that uh, has an app that is a platform for all major celebrities who have a, uh, an alcohol or drink to be able to sell it. So you know how uh, celebrities have millions of followers they can do their own commercial of their own product, oh, their wow. own brand, right? You know that if you have yeah, that many followers, you can do your own commercial, but then you can't sell it because of alcohol laws. You can't sell it. You personally can't, but you can point them to an app that they can go buy it. Uh-huh. So Grape Star is a friend of mine. I'm on the board there also, and I'm going to have, I'll probably come up with my own uh, uh brand my own liquor and uh, plus I want to take it to uh, I want to take it to Russia anyway Grape Stars is a platform for celebrities to be able to go sell their liquids their spirits and uh, so uh, so I'm part of that so there's there's things that I've been doing just being at home the other thing that uh, just before the lockdown uh, I was introduced to Cameo I don't know if you're familiar with Cameo yeah Cameo's is an app where uh, people can reach out to you and it was, it was the most fun that I was having during the lockdown because I live across the street from the ocean. So every day I'd have two or three people say, can you do a cameo for so-and-so? So I would take them to different locations and I would go do a cameo. So I've been doing cameo. I do cameos every day. <laughs> and, cool. uh, and so that's my life now. And the other thing I like doing uh, because of the quiet, I do some day trading. Yeah. So I do a little bit of day trading uh, two or three days a week. And, uh, and it's been, it's been fun. So, cause the stock market has been really good in the past year. So, um, so very little traveling. The only travel I do is to go in your neighborhood. My kids live in Newport beach. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah. My, my, I have, I have, uh, I have two daughters. I was going to ask you, Jason, do you know, uh, a Rick, uh, Pacious, Dr. Rick Pacious? The name sounds familiar to me. I, I, yeah. Yeah. So he's in the same category that you're in. Yeah. And so he ended up marrying my ex-wife, which was my first wife. Oh. And, and so his practice is out of Newport Beach. He's got a pain center. Oh, okay. And wow. Newport Beach. So it's Pacious, Rick Pacious. Yeah, I'll take I, know the name. I know the name for sure. Yeah, yeah. So Rick and I, we've become good friends. So I go out there and my girls are there and I got four grandkids. Wow. And I was there not long ago. And uh, and and H21, the product, is based out of LA. So in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Uh, we, there, there's, uh, there's an office there. So I've been going there a couple, two or three times. So I go out there. So I'm going to come and visit you guys once I'm there next time. Sure. Definitely. All right. Yeah. We'll, yeah. Go, we'll go in the studio and like, uh, get a, a full in person deal. 
There you go. Yeah, and you can give me anything you think I might need because no, I know that. <laughs> Listen, if I looked like you, I would have had a much easier life. Okay, let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that'd be great. We'd love to meet you out here. Well, you know, I live in Newport Beach, but I work in right now. I'm sitting on the corner of Roxbury and Little Santa Monica, up on okay. the uh, in the Roxanne Building. This is where my my surgery center, my office is, but. My uh, yeah. my home is in uh, in Newport, so I kind of yeah. hang out there a lot more during the weekends. And during the week, we're up here. And Jason and I did a lot of our podcasts in person for, you know, obviously before this pandemic. But you know, we're ready yeah. to get back into it. We've all been vaccinated, so we're we're ready to yeah. get get some guests back in and you know, kind of get get back in person, which would be a lot of fun. It'd be great to have you in in uh, in the studio. Yeah, I'll probably be back within the next month. I don't know if you're going to be back at it within the next month, but sure. I'll probably be back there in the next month because I, I get my daughters, two daughters are there and, and I got four grandkids. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's just that, you know, for me, it's it's a long flight, five hours. <laughs> Other than that, uh, I love it out there. Love, love Newport Beach. I lived in Laguna Beach. I lived oh. in San Clemente. I lived in Laguna Beach. I lived in San Diego. I, liz- I lived in... Uh, uh, Hermosa Beach, Beautiful. you know, playing the Kings. So I, I know all Southern California. I, I loved best. it there. It's the best. It really is. I mean, it's different now. Uh, but back then, back in the 80s, my first wife, oh, my goodness. It was I lived in San Clemente and played tennis every day. And Beautiful. I would show up in training camp. And it was so easy for me and being Jake because I was playing tennis for like five days a week. Yeah. And so that's when life life was really good when I lived out there. It's a so, beautiful place to live. I mean, Orange County and LA are just—they're amazing. It's a—it's a great spot, especially for, for a kid from New Jersey. I'm not—I'm uh, not bumming. It, uh, yeah, New Jersey, but you know, the weather in the winters would be enough to just drive you nuts. So I, I like it out here a lot. And uh, mm. do there's there's some people having some plastic surgery, so I really like it from that standpoint. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I I uh, I hadn't seen my ex-wife. Uh, for about 10 years and I saw her and I didn't recognize her. <laughs> I'm like, Robin, is that you? <laughs> Things change, you know? Yeah. I mean the fillers oh, yeah. and the, this and the, that I'm like, Oh my God. Well, and she was, and, and she didn't need much of anything. And, but you know, they're all trying to slow down the aging process, which I get. And that's what I like. People ask me, Ron, what's been your seat? I'm going to be 64. And I said, wow. it's, it's, it's an everyday lifestyle. It's yeah, an it everyday lifestyle. And I started at the age of 30. So I, I tell people every time you eat or drink something, eat something, drink something, or if you're stressed, you're either speeding up the aging process or you're slowing it down. I mm-hmm. said, I've done, I've done my best to slow it down. And, um, and so like, um, so I, I'm, the dividends are happening now because I've done this for a long time. Not that I, I mean, I still have my cheats. I still have my beers. Uh, but overall, I've always, uh, like I would do a blood test on myself every year, try to figure out my balances, you know, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, you know? Um, and so plus living, I've lived in California, I live in Florida. So to be able to go through uh, winter times with all the suppressed darkness and the cold and that makes a difference right yeah, so so to be able to go outside in february and just go play tennis go to the beach uh so anyways i'm i'm benefiting from uh just having a good good habits you know good versus bad so anyways it's friday 
Yeah, man. And it's seven o'clock. <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on, man. This is a blast. And it's great to hear about all the, your, uh, your success and your continuing success. So definitely when you get out our way, we'd love to have you in and uh, meet you in person. But uh, this has been yeah. a real pleasure and we, we appreciate it tremendously. Jason, any, any uh, closing thoughts from you? No, I just, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those situations where it's a little surreal when you've had, you know, you've admired a player and you've followed their career and everything else. And they become sometimes a little bigger than the, bigger than the game sometimes. And then you're actually talking to them and they can respond to you. It's a very, it's a thrill. And, and as Jay was saying in the preface it from the, in the beginning, we're, we're fans and we're fans of the game, we're fans of players that have played and fans of players that are playing now. And so this has been a real treat and we really appreciate it sincerely. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, uh, it's what I do. And uh, to not be able to share what I've been through, uh, you know, to hold it in. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, and I, I appreciate, I know you guys appreciate me, but I appreciate you guys. I appreciate fans that appreciated me yeah. and you appreciate a lot more as you get older, you right? Cause, cause you think as you get older, a lot of people like the newer generation, they don't really know you, but the others do, and they can fill in the younger ones. So to be able to talk about it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome for me. But it would be nice if I had 25,000 fans cheering when I finished an epidural, that would be nice. I'll never, <laughs> I'll never know that feeling, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, some things don't change. Yeah, that's all I got to say. <laughs> the yeah. lines aren't as long. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. But <laughs> all right. Well, all this good. has been been great. Thank you, Ron Duguay, for coming on to the Dr. Hockey podcast. And this is the Dr. Hockey podcast signing off with your prescription for the NHL. Thanks for listening to Dr. Hockey. Check out new episodes every Thursday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or at podcast one dot com.